0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, teach, we pray that you would teach us to not only dwell, but to rest in your holy hill, in your holy present, that our lives would speak of your goodness and grace. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be o acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Earlier this week, I was driving somewhere, and I drove by a little training place for another religion. And one of the things that always amazes me about that place is how many times I see people coming in and out of it when I happen to drive by. I don't like to you know, say, oh, they're awful and we're amazing, and so I'm just being vague here. But as I drove by, my mind started thinking about kind of the differences between us and them. And the, and the ramifications of these differences. And one of the, the major differences is it's, is it's a works-based religion, this other, this other church or organization. And one of the things I've noticed when we, when we have works-based theology is the ramification of this is that we tend to become puffed up. We tend to become proud. So if we, we slip into the mindset that our salvation is earned by what we do, We tend to start to think ourselves rather special. But when we realize that our salvation is earned by grace alone, it humbles us, and it makes us desire the good things. It makes us to desire the things which David asks this morning. David starts his psalm with a question. He asks the Lord, Who shall sojourn in your tent who shall dwell in your holy hill? That's how the ESV renders it, and I think that's a little more accurate than our Coverdale Psalter, although that Coverdale Psalter is rather poetic when it says, who shall dwell and who shall rest? This dwelling or sojourning, which the first part of the question asks, is really, who shall be a foreigner? Who shall be welcomed as a foreigner into the Lord's tent? In other words, who shall be a guest of the Lord? Likewise, this sense of dwell, I actually really like how the Coverdale draws that out, is rest, because dwelling or resting, as as either of the translations render it, means who shall then start to belong there, who shall live there permanently. And it, it, it escalates this question from being welcomed as a foreigner into a place as we are when we come to Christ, to knowing that we belong there, that that is our home. And this lives at tension with this idea of the tent and the holy hill. If you're wondering, well, why does God live in a tent? You need only to go back to Exodus 26 and 27, where God spells out to Moses what his tent should look like. So this was the place that the, that the Ark of the Covenant would reside within. And, and Moses tells or God tells Moses, when my presence is upon the tent, you put it down and you and Israel will rest there. And then when my presence goes up, you'll move on to the next stop. And David really wanted to build the Lord a permanent temple. But for a number of reasons, the Lord said, no, this will be the job of Solomon. And so when David's writing this, the Ark of the Covenant is still stored in this little sort of temporary tent. And so what, it, what, what David is drawing at is the place where the Lord, the representation of the place of the Lord amongst his people. And so David wonders who, who can dwell, who can rest, who can stay as a foreigner, who can make their home with the Lord. The Lord then responds to David in the next four verses. The Lord responds with four main themes. The person that has the desire for a pure heart can dwell with the Lord. The person that avoids doing evil against others can dwell with the Lord. The person who loves what is good can dwell with the Lord. The person who does not take advantage of the poor and the marginalized can dwell with the Lord. The bar for admittance into God's holy tent, into God's presence and his communion is impossibly high. And yet the nature of what it calls for is clear cut. The first part of this bar is this desire for a pure heart. David or the Lord says to David, he who walks blamelessly and does what's right and speaks the truth. In his heart. This draws out this desire and it begs the question what is your desire? Do you desire comfort over all else? Do you desire ease that everything would just fall into place easily? Or do you desire that your life would shine brightly for Christ to the end? I remember when one of our parishioners died a little while ago, and I remember talking to her son and and he was telling me towards the end she just wanted him to read psalms to her and as as he read these psalms to her, he realized he hadn't taken his faith nearly serious enough and so when our dear friend went to her death, there was this Even in that moment, in those dying moments, she ministered to her son in a beautiful way by inviting him in, back in, to the faith which he once held. This is what our call in life is. That we would desire to shine brightly for Christ, even when it costs us the utmost. Even when it means we have to give up some of our own personal comforts or or eases. means that we might have to take the harder or the higher road. The world will give us numerous, unnumbered temptations in this life to turn away from these things which the Lord calls us to. And yet God shows us continually his desire that we would have pure hearts, a heart that is formed by him for fidelity to him. And yet Christ set this bar even higher in his Sermon on the Mount. He says to us, Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly not perfect. And when left to my own devices, my heart is not pure. But there is hope. Ezekiel tells us gives starts to give us the hints at this hope when he writes the words of God to him. God tells him that at some point, he will give them, that is Israel and all people, a new heart, one heart and a new spirit. And I will put within them, I will remove from within them rather, their heart of stone and from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel foresees what Christ does for us. When we come to know Christ, when you come to know Christ, he takes that hard heart out of your heart, out of your body, and gives you a new flesh. So then what Paul describes in his letters so often happens, when it, what happens is that you are a new creation if you are in Christ. We do not meet this high bar that the Lord has set, but Christ already has. Christ has already fulfilled all four of these, not just the desire for a pure heart. In fact, he had the purest of hearts. He walks blamelessly before all men. In all that he did, he did what was right. He was the word of God and he spoke truth. And he cared so deeply for the least among us. And so, when you become in Christ, you are made blameless, made righteous, given this new heart of truth, that you may live in this desire. But you're not permitted to simply stay where you are. You are, as Paul says, a new creation. You are changed. If you are a drunkard, when you come to Christ, you're not permitted to continue to drink yourself to death every night. If you're a gossip, when you come to Christ, you are not permitted to continue to gossip every day. Whatever it is that you struggle with when you come to Christ, he says, leave this behind. Desire this pure heart and let me mold it within you. These lists, this list that David gives us from the Word of God are not a checklist to make us aware of how we earn our salvation, but rather, once you're in Christ, they're the fruit of the Spirit working out in you. Which brings us to the next section. Perhaps you notice this, that he bounces back between, back and forth between positive statements And negative statements. This bouncing back between positive and negative statements pushes and begs this question What do you prefer? What do you prefer? Do you prefer to live for yourself? Or do you prefer these things which God delights in? What if you had to choose between your own comfort, your own ease, or the need to avoid doing evil against others? What if you had to put away your own desires in order to glorify the Lord? The psalmist shows that the man who dwells with God is restrained in his relationship with the others, with others, not given to haughtiness towards his neighbor, not given to looking down upon his friends, but rather loving them something that I've enjoyed watching is there's a group of young men about my age and and a little older and younger in our town that love our city and want to make it a better place. Their desire isn't simply to make it a better place for their own benefit, but rather because they desire the good of their neighbor. This is ultimately what David pushes at here, what God is pushing at in verse 3 that we would desire the good of our neighbor. What is your heart's desire? The next section tells us how we are to love what is good because that is what Christ did. We are to love what is good because it is good, because it is the fruit of what God has done in this world. And there are two points worth considering here. First, who do you align yourself with? One of the heartbreaking things that I've noticed over the last decade or so in ministry is that so often we see somebody who's doing what appears to be good, but behind the scenes in their life, they're not doing good. They're doing some evil. And the people that could say to them, hey, you need to stop this because you're going to cause damage. Don't. They simply allow it to flourish because they think, well, so-and-so is doing good, and then all of a sudden that, that evil that they're, they're, they've been permitted to do pops out, and it destroys so much. <clears throat> that, that beginning of verse 4 is a little bit jarring. It says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised and if we read that and 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 stop we might be i don't want to despise anyone and what david is really driving at is that whole idea of if you have somebody in your life who is doing something vile don't let them tell them this is vile this is bad this is evil repent and turn away because the damage of that evilness damages so much and so we should defi- we should despise vile actions they're not good we should not tolerate sin whether it's a sin within ourselves or the sin in another person despise that sin the last sentence of this verse 4 is equally interesting and it's a little confusing the way that the esv words it he says they 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 Render it who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I rather like how the Tinsdale Psalter draws this out. He drew it out in this way. He that swears unto his neighbor and disappointeth him not, though it were to his own hindrance. In other words, he who says, I will do this thing, and then realizes, oh no, that's going to cost me, doesn't stop and not do it. But rather, he continues on to do that. Now, who does that make us think of? We have to rewind all the way back to the beginning of humanity, to chapter 3 in Genesis. Remember what God tells the snake. He tells him that a descendant of Eve will come to crush his head. But we have to fast forward now from David to Christ. Christ is that descendant. He is the one that comes to crush the head of the serpent. But what does it cost Christ? Christ must die in order to destroy Satan. Christ must experience death so that we can be freed from the temptation of Satan. It costs God everything in order that you might have life. He models that for us. He models these very phrases for us. It costs him everything in order that you might live, in order that you might have a new heart, a pure heart that glorifies him. The final verses, the final verse draws out this interesting theme as well. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take bribe, bribes against the innocent. Here, David or God through David is saying that, that we must not take advantage of the poor. It's very odd to me that throughout the history of man, this is something that we've flourished at. This is in fact, the great charge that the prophets often have against Israel. They say, no, no, you've taken advantage of the poorest among you. In one case, they talk about moving the stones so that, so that the rich person has more room in their field and the poor person loses part of their field. And so when David talks about not loaning his mo- money out for interest, he's not talking about banks. He's not saying, well, you shouldn't have a mortgage, although you should be wise with your mortgage. He's not talking about that. He's talking about, Things like those day-advanced cash places that charge an exorbitant amount of money to loan, to, to borrow money from them, that charge an exorbitant amount so that the poor don't become richer, they become poorer. But the takeaway for you and I isn't that we shouldn't work for those. I, I don't think you should. But the takeaway is that if a family member or friend comes to you and wants to borrow money because they've hit a hard-up point, do will be like, sure, I'll give you 100 bucks, but you're going to owe me $125. Just give them the money, and if they can repay you, let them repay you. Don't take advantage of their situation for your own gain. And the same is the case for bribing a, a bribe against the innocent. I can't imagine a more awful thing to do than to be like, take some money and, and tell some lie about this good person. It's not what we are to do as Christians. We are to speak the truth in love. At the same time, each of these clauses in this psalm ask and beg the same question. What is your desire? Is your desire for riches at all cost? Is your desire for, for comfort and pleasure at all cost? Or is your desire to dwell in Christ? In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If we're realistic as we examine our hearts, we'll realize that we are terribly, terribly messy people. I think I know most of you love Christ. Most of you love your family and love your church. But you also love yourselves. You love your comforts. You love pleasures, too. Our hearts are not pure. But Christ's heart was pure. He lived that life that you cannot live, and he gave you his pure heart. And so, let me tell you this good news. The process of sanctification will take you your whole life it will eventually mean that you will have to die. But if you are in Christ, he is making your heart pure so that you love him more today than you did yesterday, so that the temptations of this world today are duller than they were yesterday, so that on that great last day, you can see God so that as the psalmist writes this morning, he who does these things shall never be moved so that you shall never be moved. This is the great assurance, my friends. When Christ is working in you, when Christ is making you and giving you a new heart, when Christ When you prefer Christ above all else, there is no depth, no height, no anything in this world, in heaven above or in the earth beneath that can move you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.